The Tom Woods Show, episode 1176. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, we hear a lot of anxiety these days about people's jobs. They're afraid of automation, robots taking their jobs. They're afraid of the pink slip. They're afraid that maybe a tweet is going to get them fired. Well, whatever the case may be, in the age of the internet, there's no excuse not to be starting on your side hustle that could someday be converted into your primary gig. I've got some step-by-step approaches for you in my free ebook over at pathstoincome.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. We're talking about Karl Marx today. We're talking about Marx as an economist, not as a philosopher or a theorizer of the laws of history or any of that stuff. But specifically, we're talking about economics, and we're talking about this with G.P. Manish, who's been with us before. G.P. is an associate professor of economics in the Sorel College of Business at Troy University. He's also a member of the university's Manuel H. Johnson Center of Political Economy. GP holds a PhD in economics from Suffolk University in Boston. He is the recipient of several prizes in his field and is widely published in the academic literature. GP, welcome back. Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me again. All right. It's been quite a while, but when I saw your article about Marx and Bombavik, I thought, now's the time, especially because, my gosh, I don't recall in the past there being quite so many uh, tributes to the brilliance of Karl Marx on the you know the anniversary of his birth. It was insane. It was in all these mainstream outlets, and everybody just spoke as if his extremely controversial claims were simply commonplaces. Yes, and you know, in fact, I had uh, I had rational expectations about that. You know, I was preparing to write this piece and timed it so that it would coincide with his two hundredth. You know, around the time of that two uh, hundredth anniversary of his birth. Oh. Uh, because I ex- I expected that you know there would be uh, quite a few pieces praising him, his you know numerous contributions to different fields of thought and so on. Well, what you've done here in particular is taken on one of the claims that people didn't pay as much attention to. Uh, for instance, uh, you quote an article you refer to an article in the New York Times called Marx Was Right, and a lot of people answered that article by talking about the impossibility of socialism in the classical sense because of the socialist calculation problem, which we've talked about numerous times on this show. But then you took on the more technical argument, which is, and this is again quoting from the New York Times, Marx's basic thesis is is he's arguing in favor of Marx's basic thesis that capitalism is driven by a deeply divisive class struggle in which the ruling class minority appropriates the surplus labor of the working class majority as profit is correct. And this is one of the arguments that Eugen von Bombavik made many many years ago uh, in in Karl Marx and the close of his system, but it's a very very heavy piece of economic reasoning. And it's not very accessible to the layman. And what you've done is taken the insights of Bombavik that really do pretty much bury Marx so to the point where if you're going to defend him after that, you have to shed half of his framework in order to, to do it. And you've done a great service in your article that I'll link to on the show notes page in making this accessible to the general public. So I'd like to dive into that right now, if I may. You ready? Uh, sure, sure. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, actually, uh, credit also should go to my student, uh, Cassidy, who I co-authored the article with. 
Um, she's the one who actually dove into Karl Marx and the close of his system. And, you know, the article grew out of that. Wow, that's tremendous. And she, yeah, she, she's a bright young kid and she's going to be in the in our master's program starting up. So Wow. Oh, that's really great. I love hearing things like that. That's wonderful. Okay, let's start off with the labor theory of value. Now, but incidentally, by the way, these days you find a lot of Marxists who don't believe in the labor theory of value. And yet, as we're going to see, it seems so fundamental to Marx's view of exploitation and all the rest of his analytical apparatus that it seems that if you get rid of this one thing, the whole thing ought to come down with it. But anyway, let's talk about what does he mean when he uses this concept of the labor theory of value? Sure. Uh, just before that, I wanted to just make a little comment on what you said. I think that's uh, you know, pretty insightful because I think it goes a lot with sort of the, the way people have analyzed Marx's work. You know, earlier, like when Bumbavik was criticizing Marx, Marx the economist was what everybody was talking about. This is in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, nowadays, we think more in terms of Marx, the philosopher, right? So themes like alienation um, and stuff like that is played up. But like you mentioned, I think economics is really core and critical to his whole overall worldview. You know, you can't like uh, actually uh, make a cohesive argument for his worldview without including the economic aspect of it. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and that's why the power of Bumbavik's criticism. Now, coming to the actual labor theory of value, well, basically, it's it's pretty simple. You know, so what Marx is arguing um, is that the exchange, you know, the ratios of prices, right? Um, whether we live in a barter world where goods are trading directly for goods or we live in a world with money where goods are trading for money, the actual exchange ratios will reflect the relative amounts of labor time that are embodied in the two goods being exchanged. Right. So to take an example, for example, if let's say one shirt is trading for one loaf of bread, right? Um, what that implies is, or that what that reflects, um, is that each of those two articles is going to embody the same amount of labor time needed to produce it. So let's say 10 hours went into producing the loaf of bread, then 10 hours went into producing the loaf, uh, the, the shirt as well. So that's basically the labor theory of value. So let's make sure so as not to set up a straw man that everybody understands what the labor theory of value is not. He's not, first of all, saying that if it takes you, if you're just a really lousy shirt maker and it takes you 100 hours of labor, that that ought to be taken into account. He does use the concept of socially necessary labor. Yes. And secondly, he's not saying that if you spend all day um, – you know, fashioning mud pies into you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, plates and trying to serve them as edible. That this this doesn't automatically make it desirable simply because you've employed your labor in it. So we don't need to go into caricatures of what he's saying. That's the point. Now, what I'd like to do in this episode is follow exactly what you've done in the article, where we're not going to critique each idea as it's presented. Let's present the whole system, yeah. and then let's go back and and unravel each one of the parts. Sure. So, so that's okay. the, the labor theory of value. And then then you have a section on his law of value, which I think yes. you've more or less just hit on in terms of exchange one thing for another indicates that there must be some equal amount of some third thing, namely labor, in both of them. Yeah, and that's how Marx actually uh, tries to pr provide a proof or argument for the labor theory of value. Now, Bumbavik makes an interesting point. He says, you know, uh, if you look at David Ricardo or Adam Smith, you know, they sort of have some sort of, I mean, Smith had different sort of theories of value. Uh, Ricardo was more explicit about it, but they actually don't try to provide any proof, you know, for what 
for why the labor theory value should hold true. Bumbawa gives Marx, cre- uh, Marx a lot of credit. He says, well, he's the first guy who actually tries to provide an argument as positive proof for this proposition. Um, and basically, the way he does it is to say, he actually starts with an observation by Aristotle, you know, made a long, long time ago. He says, Aristotle said, well, you know, if two articles are exchanging for each other, there must be something that is equal, right? Um, in term, in both of them, right? So, so this, this thing called value must exist in both of them. It must be of some magnitude and it must be equal. And so Marx starts with that and says, okay, if we assume, you know, assuming that is true, uh, then we have to search for what is this common element that makes, you know, the value in each of these two articles equal, right? And, and, and then what he does is the way he proceeds to do it is not through a positive proof of what the common element is. Instead, he sort of, rejects everything else and ends up with labor, um, labor time as the common element. Oh, okay. All right. So actually, I guess I hadn't realized that's how he had gone about it. All right. So now we're up to the section on how he takes this idea and uses it to develop his idea of surplus value and what profits are and what worker exploitation is. So now this is where it actually becomes a little tricky to follow. So let's take our time with this. Uh, sure. So, you know, so the law of value is basically saying that, you know, what what we started uh, our discussion with that the two, you know, in any exchange relationship or any sort of price, the two articles being traded embody the same amount of labor time. Um, so that's the law of value. Now, it's important to point out that for Marx, you know, he, he accepts the fact that actual prices will fluctuate around this law of value, right? So for example, um, you know, in a, in a monetary world, let's say $1, uh, you know, embodies two hours of labor time. Um, and let's say, you know, uh, a shirt also embodies two hours of labor time. Now, according to the law of value, therefore, you know, one shirt must exchange for a dollar because they embody the same amount of labor time. But Marx says, well, this is sort of a long run tendency, right? So at any given moment in time, you know, a shirt might trade for more than a dollar or less than a dollar, but you know, in the long run, it will tend towards this, the, the, the price dictated by the law of value. Um, and what that then, you know, the next step then is to try to say, okay, if we accept the law of value is true, how do we explain the profits earned by capitalists? And that's where the whole theory of surplus value comes into play. Okay. So how do we then get to exploitation? How does any of this involve something? Well, I will say, I, I read David Conway's book, by the way, A Farewell to Marx. Right. He says it's it's debatable whether or not Marx is actually rendering a moral judgment on capitalism yes. when he uses the word exploitation. So we should be careful about that. But so, so if I say that something underhanded is going on, I may be speaking out of turn. Yes. In fact, there is an argument some uh, people make, you know, some supporters uh, of Marx make, uh, who, may, who make the argument that actually he never even, you know, says this is morally unjust. He's trying to be scientific about it um you know uh, that that while but it implies that right so if we were to impute some sort of moral judgment and, and you know yeah we'll get to that i guess we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit all right so yeah so let's let's talk then about how exploitation is involved then just right. based on what we've heard so far yeah. what is it about the wages that that uh people are receiving that is problematic yeah so this is where it gets tricky so you know the next step in marx's argument is I mean, you know, all of this is really logical, right? So you have to give credit to him. He's taking this one proposition and he's trying to, you know, apply it as rigorously as possible in a logical sense. Um, and so what 
when he approaches the whole problem of profits, um, you know, what, what he says is, look, the way, first of all, what is the broad sort of, you know, pattern of the activities of a capitalist? What he does, what the capitalists do in a market, you know, in a, in a capitalist economy or a private property, economy based on private property is they, you know, invest some amount of money into certain commodities, the inputs into the production process, right? So that includes, uh, you know, the material factors of production, machines and raw material and things like that, and also labor. And then what they do is they transform those inputs into an output, which they sell for a certain price. And Marx sort of said this, uh, this whole pattern of activities can be translated into a, or, or sort of uh, summarized by what he said, the MCM prime pattern. Okay, so you basically have a sum of money M, let's say $100, you invest that into inputs, you convert the $100 into a bundle of commodities, which are your inputs, you use your inputs, you produce an output, and you sell it for some higher amount of money, right? M prime, let's say 110, which would mean like a 10% rate of profit. Um, and what Marx is, you know, the whole puzzle for Mar- that Marx is trying to solve is the following. He says, look, you invest this amount of money in your inputs. Those prices of those inputs is regulated by the law of value, right? So the amount of labor time embodied in the input should equal the amount of labor time that's embodied in the money that you pay for the inputs, right? At the same time, when you sell your output, that too should conform to the law of value, right? So yeah, yeah, the amount of labor time embodied in your output should equal the amount of labor time that is embodied in the money that you're receiving for the output. But in this process, somehow, the amount of labor time embodied in the output is greater than the amount of labor time embodied in the total inputs. That's the only way you can explain profit. That's surplus value. So that's the puzzle that Marx is trying to solve. Okay, so how does he solve it? What does he say is the explanation for how this can happen? The crucial factor is everything to do with labor markets and the wage rate, right? So Marx distinguishes between the material factors of production and the human factor of production. Um, And for the material factors of production, he says, look, let's say you purchase, you know, cotton to make cotton yarn. Um, And let's say that embodies, you know, a certain amount of labor time. Now, when you use that cotton yarn into producing the the cotton to produce the cotton yarn, all of that labor time is going to be transferred to the output. So, you know, 20 hours worth of labor went into producing the cotton, that 20 hours get transferred to your product. The case with labor, however, is different. So the way Marx, so Marx says the law of value applies to wages and labor as well. And the way it applies is, um, so he says, let's, you know, and he talks in terms of daily wages. So let's say you pay $3 to hire workers for a day, right? Um, and assuming a dollar embodies two hours of labor time, that means what that implies is that somehow six hours of labor time went into producing a day's work. And this is the puz- slightly puzzling part, which is say, how do you produce labor? Because, you know, you're born with it, right? You have the ability to just work. And what he means here, of course, is that you need to be able to consume certain commodities to subsist, right? So the average worker, let's say, has to consume a certain bundle of commodities to be able to survive so that he can produce his labor power, as Marx would call it. Um, And the, the amount of labor that goes into those products that he has to consume to subsist is the amount of labor time that is needed to produce a day's work, right? And then what that implies is, what Marx is saying is, look, let's say that six hours went into uh, producing a day's worth of work. 
right? And that's embodied in the wage rate that the capitalist is paying. But the capitalist can employ the worker for any amount of time in the day. And if he employs the worker for a greater span of time than the amount of time that goes into producing the labor power, that's the source of surplus labor. And that's the source of surplus value. This step always, no matter how hard I try, I mean, eventually I got it, but this step just really mystified me. It was just hard. I think it's partly because labor, you're right, it's hard to think of it the way you would think of cotton yarn. Yeah, and the thing is, the crucial thing in the whole argument is that in terms of the material factors of production, there is no way that they could contribute to profit in Marxist. The way he said, you know, once you start deducing from the labor theory value and you hit sort of material factors, right, there is, that's what Marx calls constant capital, right? He says these are const, this is constant capital because the amount of labor time embodied in them must just be transferred to the product. But in the case of labor, there is leeway. So the capitalist you know, in the wages that he pays the worker is paying for a certain amount of labor time that's gone into producing the subsistence, you know, goods, the goods that uh, ensure the worker has to subsist. But then he has the option of employing the worker for a certain working day, which might be greater or less than the amount of that labor time that went into producing the work, the labor power. And that's what Marx calls variable capital. He calls the amount of, uh, amount of money that is invested in workers and wages, he calls that variable capital because you can extract the surplus value from them, but you cannot do that for the material factors of production. Man, there's a lot here. All right. I think maybe it would actually illuminate Marx's argument more if we now looked at the critique, because if anybody is having trouble seeing what's going on here or what the nature of the argument is, it may actually become clearer when you see Bombarwick take it apart and you see – once you see the correct way to think about what's really going on, then I think it's easier to understand his error. So does it make sense now to start – to go back to the labor theory of value and see what's wrong right there? Yes, it does. So let's let's do that. Okay. So basically Mar- Bombarwick's criticism of Marx's labor theory of value, right, he – what he says is, look, he, you know, like I said, he gives credit to Marx. He says, oh, he actually tries to argue for this. So let's try to see what could be wrong. Um, and you know, what Bombarwick says is, look, the, the, the method that Marx applies to, to sort of sifting out labor as being that common, you know, element that we discussed earlier, that's not necessarily a wrong step, right? And that's because remember, you know, he's sort of putting all the different properties that could possibly explain this supposed equality of value, right? And he's coming up with labor at the end of it. So Bumbarak says, well, if you put all the possible properties in there and you very rigorously sort of argue through the analysis and show that every other possible property could not explain the common magnitude or the common element, then Marx's argument would be right. But the first criticism he makes is he says, hang on a second, Marx never even considers the fact that there are certain commodities that could not be produced with labor time, but which do have exchange value, right? And they have prices, you know, especially those commodities that are products of nature, right? So if you think, for example, of a tract of land, just land as it exists at any given moment in time that, you know, is scarce and is being sold, let's say, purchased by a farmer, right? What is the labor time that went into producing the tract of land, right? It doesn't exist. 
Similarly, if you think of you know oil or coal that is under the ground, right, which also has a price, but there was no labor that went into producing those commodities. So actually what Bumbavik, the first criticism he makes of Marx is he says, hang on a second, he actually, from the beginning, assumes that all the commodities being exchanged are products of labor. All right, so that's the first thing. So yes. right away, he claims to have a universal theory that obviously Which is three not. seconds of reflection shows you is not. Okay, right. fair and enough. But what if I just came back and said, all right, well, there are, okay, so maybe we can't account for some of the nature-given factors, right. but maybe it's otherwise true. Right, exactly. So, you know, the, and then Bumbavik is the next, that's the next step. He says, okay, well, someone could say, oh, you know, these, these sort of uh, commodities don't really, they're not a major part of transactions, right? Most commodities that we transact or we sort of exchange on markets are products of labor. Well, what then? And the next step, and this is an interesting argument that Bumbavik makes, he says, look, how did Marx actually, let's focus only on products of labor. How did Marx eliminate the different properties and end up with labor, okay? And he says, look, Marx makes an argument. He says, look, why can't, uh, you know, the, he, he accepts, you know, and we discussed this, he, uh, and he pointed this out, he accepts that these, prop- these commodities are useful, right? So something like bread, right, or a shirt. It is a product of labor, but it's also useful. It has some use value, right? You, you use it to satisfy some wants. Why can't use value be the thing that links the two commodities, right? Why should it be labor? And what Marx says, and this is a crucial point here, he says, well, you know, think of all the things that make some good useful, you know, uh, like bread. It would be various properties that the bread has, right? It has nutritive properties, uh, you know, it, it tastes a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these certain properties contribute to the fact that it is useful and that we, you know, consume it to satisfy some needs. Marx says, if you take two commodities and, you know, if you if you try to think about what is the common element that is contributing to the equal value in the two of them, well, all of these uh, uh, properties that contribute to use value actually lend, make the two commodities different, not the same, right? So if you're talking about a shirt exchanging for uh, a loaf of bread, well, there are just certain properties that contribute to the use value of a shirt. And there are certain properties that contribute to the use value of bread. These two things make the commodities different. So therefore, all these different properties that contribute to the use value cannot be the common element that that explains uh, the equality of value. All right. So there's a okay. So are, is this the fundamental critique then of the labor theory of value, or is there more? Well, the, then that's how Marx then says, oh, once we eliminate all of this stuff, then we're left with labor. Right. That's Marx's argument. And, and what Bumbarvik says in response is he makes two points. He says, well, on the one hand, you know, even though all of these different properties contribute to the usefulness of these two commodities, usefulness or the fact that it can satisfy wants is a common co- property of the two commodities. Right. So why should we not assume that those, you know, just looking at pure utility or marginal utility, or just usefulness, why can't we assume that that could be the thing that explains the common magnitude, even if we assume that the value of the two commodities is equal, right? And then the next and even more important point that Bumbava raises is, let's think about labor. And Marx actually talks about this. He says, well, you know, we have different kinds of labor, right? So you have, you know, the labor the labor of a baker produces the the, the bread, the labor of a tailor produces the shirt. But when he talks about labor and explains and, th- and talks about labor as the thing that explains the equality of value, he assumes 
that there is some commonality to that labor. But Bumbavik says that, you know, and his criticism is, he says, hang on a second. You said all the properties that, 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 that explain use values lend heterogeneity or make the commodities different. Now you accept the fact that you have different types of labor. But somehow when you look at labor, you look at a commonality. But when you look at the various properties that contribute to use value, you see a dissimilarity. So there is no common, you know, you're just basically making the argument up as you go along. All right, we've got more to talk about with Marx, and we haven't even gotten to the key argument, the one that absolutely is unanswerable, just completely unanswerable because it assumes everything that he's saying is true and then shows there's still a problem with it. So we're just about to get to that. But before we do that, I'd like to help listeners make one of the easiest decisions they'll ever make. I know the folks who listen to this show are ambitious, and ambitious people either want to get better at what they do already or they want to learn something new and get good at that, or just add some new skill to their existing repertoire, something to make them stand out from the pack. And the best way to do that is via Skillshare. One membership gets you access to over 20,000 classes in technology, entrepreneurship, business, marketing, many, many areas. You guys hear me talking about this stuff a lot. Well, this is the easiest decision you can make because you get, as a listener of The Tom Woods Show, two months worth of access to those 20,000 plus classes for just 99 cents. Yes, this is something you have to do. Millions of students are already on Skillshare. So right now, head on over to Skillshare.com slash Woods to get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. Two months of Skillshare access for just 99 cents over at Skillshare.com slash Woods. What about the more fundamental point that really doesn't even touch on the labor question, just his faulty understanding of exchange that the very idea of thinking in terms of equality to begin with. Yes. Obviously, the two individuals don't view the two things as being quote unquote equal. Or yes. why would they, if they were genuinely equal, then the two people would be completely indifferent to whether they made the exchange and they wouldn't bother. And that is a point that Bumbavik raises, but it's a slightly weaker argument than the other ones because you're, what Bumbavik is trying to do with the other arguments is he's trying to grant the fact that value somehow is equal. Right. You think even if we right. assume yeah, that, even if we assume that we there are still problems. Yeah, even if we take away the whole subjective element altogether, like Marx wants, right? Because the argument that you know you just stated would assume we're assume, we're taking a subjective standpoint that well, why would I give up something that I value equal to something else? Right? And what Bumbarvix is trying to say is look, even if we assume that something objective, some property of this product must be what determines value. The way Marx goes about distilling it down to being labor as the common element is just arbitrary. There is no, he just, he, he basically is, has a conclusion and he tries to find an argument to reach the conclusion. All right. So that I get why that is a stronger argument, but I felt like it's still at some level has to be pointed out. Yes. Yes. I, I agree with you. I, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, one doesn't have to grant so much to Marx as well. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate the generosity of Bumbabrick. Of course, by the end, with with Marx, you know, lying there with his limbs removed and and his, his right. guts all over the floor, you know, Bumbabrick has you know has had his say. But let's can we go now to the problem of exploitation and how we can deal with that? Because let me see if I can every time for the for the Ron Paul curriculum, I I did a 
a long section, probably four classes on Marx. And right. when I got to this part, I had to re-record this five or six times yeah. to get to express it correctly. So let me see if this that was years ago now. Let me see if I'm good at just okay. reproducing what you just said to me. Like you just said this 15 minutes ago, and I'm still not confident that I can uh, spit it back at you. But it basically goes like this, that – if we're going to talk about uh, the labor theory of value, well, labor itself is subject to the labor theory of value. How do yeah. we create the labor? Well, we have to – there are inputs that go into it, namely mm-hmm. food and whatever else you need right. to, to, as you say, subsist. Right. But when I compare these inputs that I have to put in with, on the other hand, all the outputs I get from that labor – there's a difference between these things that that favors me, the employer, and right. that difference represents surplus value and exploitation. Yes, but what? Yes, that were, yes, broadly correct. Yeah, but if that were true, then the only reason workers would ever go for if they were in some metaphysical sense entitled to more than they're getting, right. so the the only reason that they would ever consent to this would be. Well, they have no other choice. All the capitalists are colluding with each other to keep wages down. The society they live in inculcates certain values in them that are at odds with their own interests, but they can't perceive that. Right. I mean, is that am I? What am I not saying correctly about this? Well, the thing is that, and this is a point that I don't touch on in the article, but actually Bumbava uh, criticizes this point. He says even if you grant whatever you said is true, right? Even if we assume that. You know, like the, the, the socialist slogan, right? Which is that, well, workers should get the full value that they produce, right? And he said, well, why do, and you know, he, he put it the same way that you did. He said, why do people accept to be ripped off, right? If you know that, you know, you're not getting the full value of what you're putting in, right? Why do you continue to be employed? Why do you continue to agree to this uh, consent to this, uh, this whole arrangement? But he says, and this is a very interesting argument. Um, he says, you know, once you once you accept the subjective theory of value, you actually realize that the laborer is getting the full value of his of 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 everything he puts in, because of the time difference between the value of the labor and the output that he creates, right, and the value of the final product that is going to be sold, which is lies in the future. All right, so let's make sure everybody gets that. The point is that the laborer gets whatever money he gets yes. pretty much right away. Now, even, right. And the employer bears the burden of waiting for the product to be brought to market. Exactly. Or in some cases, these could be products that they have so many stages in them. Exactly. Maybe this one worker is responsible for some stage that's way remote from the finished product. Five yet, years away, he, let's say. Right. You know? But he gets paid today instead of having to wait five years. If five yes. years from now, maybe he could get some amount that Marx thinks he's entitled to, but yes. he'll be dead and yes. won't be able to enjoy it. No, and, and in fact, this is what Bumbavik says, that the reason why the worker accepts this arrangement is because he does not have the means to sustain himself through that production process, right? That's what the capitalist does. He bears the burden of uncertainty, of course, and because you know he's producing for the future, but also just the, the fact that he's the one who has the capital to be able to you know, provide that the wages to the worker and be able to do that while the production process is underway. And so there is this whole time element to when the output is going to be produced and when the value is going to be finally generated. So the worker is getting paid now, but the value of the final consumer good that is coming out of that production process lies in the future. 
and that's where the, the and that's the source of all the earnings of the capitalist in the in terms of both interest and profit. Can I? I have to go back to this the the issue that I have such trouble with. I can, I can't imagine I'm the only one who has trouble following it. I'm just going to repeat it for you again. I'm sorry to be so yeah. slow and dense no, today, fine. but but the the argument would be I the employer. All I it, it seems to take for granted that all I have to pay and that therefore all I will wind up paying to the worker is just enough to keep him going. Right. But yet I can employ him for many more hours longer than it would take to acquire the stuff to keep him going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but by the way, in reality, I mean, I can, forget about Marx's books. Yeah. In reality, that's never, almost never the wage anybody works for. I mean, yes. we have minimum wages in America, but almost nobody earns them. And and if that were the case, even if it were the case that the only that okay, we have minimum wages and that forces some some employers to pay more than they otherwise would, but that doesn't explain why 98% of Americans earn more than the minimum wage because you no, can I- subsist on that minimum wage. You absolutely can. And yet you don't get paid it. How does he account for that? Well, he doesn't because, you know, his whole, his whole, uh, and this is the thing, right? Once you accept the labor theory value and you push it to its logical conclusion, you have to accept what is, what is called the iron law of wages, right? Which is what you're objecting to. The notion that ultimately the wages on the marketplace will reflect the amount of labor time that is needed to ensure that workers subsist, right? Um, that is a logical conclusion of the labor theory of value. And of course, that is a separate criticism that one can make of, Mar- of, of the actual wages that prevail, which is to say, hang on a second, they don't actually um, reflect bare subsistence. Um, now, now, both Ricardo and Marx, and Ricardo too, sort of, you know, ascribe to this theory more or less. They both sort of say, well, you know, hang on a second, subsistence, and Marx also says this, he says subsistence, subsistence is not objective, it's subjective, Right. Um, but of course, when you apply the argument, what you mean by subsistence is sort of something objective, which is to say barely surviving, right? And, and there is no response to this. I don't think there is. No, I don't think there is either, especially you when have to, you have. Sorry, you have to chuck out. You have to throw out the labor theory value. But, but that's the, the only way. But also, how could you ever then? I think Mises points this out. If the argument that he makes for how history unfolds is that the position of the workers consistently deteriorates, how is that not contradicting what he's saying here? If they're already at subsistence, how could it deteriorate? They'd be dead if it deteriorated. Right. And yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the whole labor aspect of of, the the whole labor market aspect, of course, has yet all of these contradictions built into it. But in Bambamar's criticism, actually, interestingly, um, he he leaves all that out. So he yeah, basically, so, you know, so I, is, I want you to, yeah, now fill in all the, all the smarter guy stuff that I left out because I was focusing on the dumb guy stuff. Oh, no, I mean, that, that's not, uh, I think, I think Bombarak is just trying to be, and this is sort of a 19th century sort of he's, way of criticizing. He, he's a 19th century, a yeah, he's a 19th century Bob Murphy who is constantly granting things and saying, look, even on your own terms, you lose. Yes. He really, and yes. is, isn't it interesting, Bob says that Bombarak is his favorite economist. Uh, I would say he's my second, if not close first, tied with Mises. Isn't that something? He's a magnificent economist. I mean, he's he's brilliant. Yeah. All right. So now let's get some more Bumbavrik. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy. Let the knowledge <laughs> okay, well, just wash over me. <laughs> no. So the thing is, and and this is again, you know, a little tricky. Uh, so remember, you know, we spoke about constant versus variable capital, right? So 
you know, that 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 the material factors of production cannot account for profits. It can only be accounted for by the fact that the capitalist is making the workers work longer hours than is needed, you know, to to basically allow them to subsist. Um, And in fact, Marx says, well, you know, the amount of time that, let's say, you know, six hours of labor time is needed to produce the subsistence goods that are needed for workers to survive, that, you know, if the capitalist makes the worker work for six hours, that is necessary labor. But if the working day is 12 hours, the extra six hours is surplus labor, right? So the, that is the, that's how he, 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 that's how he defines these concepts. And he says that surplus labor is responsible for surplus value or profit. Now, if you take a step further, this, this, you know, you, you get into all sorts of contradictions with it. And, you know, I go through it in detail in the article. To summarize, the problem is that you, you know, let's assume that every, the, the working day throughout the economy is the same, right? Um, so every capitalist is paying the same wage rate to workers throughout the whole economy. So, and that, that is the subsistence wage, right? Which, which ensures, um, which reflects the labor time needed to subsist. Um, and let's also assume that the working day is the same. So let's say, you know, six hours is the necessary labor component and 12 hours is the working day in every industry. What that must mean is that in every, in every industry, the, what Marx calls the rate of exploitation or the rate of surplus value will be the same. That is, you know, the, the amount of surplus value extracted from workers will be the same. The problem, however, is that even if the rate of surplus value is the same in every industry, you can have differences in the rate of profit. <laughs> because profit is not calculated purely as using variable capital as your base, but it also includes the amount of money you put into your material factors of production or your constant capital. So what the contradiction in Marx's system is that if you assume the labor theory of value holds, and if you assume the law of value holds, and if you assume that the whole theory of surplus value also holds true, you grant him all of this, you emerge, you, you come into you know, uh, this, this bad contradiction, which is all of these things can hold true, but you have different rates of profit in different industries. And so what Bombabak says is, hang on a second, this is a situation of disequilibrium, right? And Marx also accepts this. He too says in his third volume, right? Uh, where he actually deals with this contradiction explicitly, um, he says this is a problem and that there will be, therefore, you know, this is a disequilibrium situation. So capital will move out of those industries with lower rates of profit to, into those industries with a higher rate of profit. And the actual prices to which markets will tend in the long run will not be the prices that are dictated by his labor theory of value. And so basically what Bumbavik says is, hang on a second, if you accept all of this, where is the foundation for your labor theory of value and for your theory of exploitation? It, it just doesn't exist. Is this the same argument just on a higher level that there's a problem when we look at different industries and we look at how labor intensive they are as opposed to capital intensive? Yes. So that yeah, uh, so, so let me let me just explain it the way again of the way a, a dumb guy like me understands it. The the argument would be that according to Marx's system, it should be the case that the more labor intensive an industry is, what the higher the rate of profit because the more opportunity for exploitation. 
But that yeah, does the not... Higher the rate, yeah, the higher, yeah, you're right. Higher the rate of surplus value, not rate of profit. Okay, okay, I, I beg your pardon. Okay, so the higher the rate of surplus value, but if but that doesn't seem to hold true empirically. Yes, because you can have, so, so you know, you would have industries with the same amount of rate of surplus value or rate of exploitation, right, which you just mentioned, but they would have differing rates of profit because profit is not calculated purely on the amount that you pay out for your workers, right? So you, you have two industries where you pay $3 for a worker for a day, you make them work, you know, uh, double the amount of time that the, that is reflected in the three hours. So you get like a hundred percent rate of surplus value or rate of exploitation, but they will have differing rates of profit because the same actual absolute amount of profit that you've extracted will now be, you know, when you calculate your rate of profit, you have to include the amount that you pay for your material factors of production. So if, you know, the, the, if one industry is more capital intensive than the other, you will have differing rates of profit, even though you have the same rate of surplus value extraction. So this confounds Marx precisely how? Just just to make it as super well, clear because, as possible. Because, because if you assume that the law of value holds true, right? All that that guarantees is that your rate of surplus value can equalize. But if when your rate of surplus value is equalized across different industries, if you have differing rates of profit, then of course that means there's still room for prices to change, right? Because remember, for Marx, the law of value has to hold true is, is a long run phenomenon, right? Prices tend to the prices dictated by the law of value. But if that holds true, all that that can guarantee is that the rate of surplus value extraction is the same in every industry. But that, but that still allows for differences in the rate of profit based on what Marx called the organic difference in the organic composition of capital in that some industries are more capital intensive and other industries are less capital intensive. And then what that implies is then those prices are not equilibrium prices. They are not the prices to which your markets are tending. Because if there's a if there's a difference in profit, that's going to attract change the prices, right, of of the commodities being produced. Well, and so the long run tendency of prices is going to be different. It's actually going to be dictated by the relative costs of production, which is a very different theory of prices as compared to the labor theory value. Because essentially, what you're saying is, in your long run, your equilibrium prices are going to be determined not just by the amount of labor that the two uh, products embody, but you also have to include some component for the amount of capital. That but Marx must have realized that you, that that is a factor. So how is he addressing that? Well, he, he, he tries very hard in volume three of Capital to address it, but as Bumbavik points out, and in fact, the, the interesting thing is Bumbavik pointed this out before Marx actually explicitly discussed it, because you know, the, in the history of how capital was written, you know, Das Kapital, uh, volume one was written in 1867 and Marx died. Um, and volume two and three were, you know, released posthumously. Engels put it together from notes that Marx had left out. When Bumbavik wrote his famous, uh, you know, first volume of his Capital and Interest, uh, which is criticizing all the different theories of interest, he deals with Marx's uh, theory of interest or exploit, what he calls the exploitation theory of interest. And there he actually says that, you know, either the labor theory of value holds true and you have in the long run industries with differing rates of profit or 
you accept the fact that in the long run, competition ensures that the rate of profit will equalize across industries, and that means the labor theory value cannot be true. So he actually predicted the problem. And and Marx sort of tries to deal with it in volume three, but you know he doesn't really do a good job of it. Now, is the reason that the first scenario can't hold, where you have different rates of profit, that any alert entrepreneur is not going to sit yeah. around in some industry with a lower rate of profit. Yeah. It's going to move things around. That's going to change all these variables, yeah. all these prices and stuff. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, this was a crucial part of classical economics, right? Right from Adam Smith down through Ricardo, Mill, every, all classical economists accepted the fact that if you have different rates of profit in two industries or in different industries, you're going to have capital move from where you have a lower rate of profit to where you have a higher rate of profit or where in fact you're making a loss to where you're making a profit. And Marx also accepts this in Volume 3. Uh, you know, there's a famous Chapter 10 of Volume 3 where he tries to deal with all of these issues. Um, and he accepts it. He says, yes, competition will not allow for different rates of profit. Um, and, 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 you know, the one thing he tries to, and Bumbavik talks about this in, this in the book, Karl Marx and the Close of the System. He deals with these arguments as well. He tries to say something to the effect of, well, you know, um, even if we accept this to be true, um, the actual long-run rate of profit to which industries will tend is going to be some sort of an average rate of profit, which is indirectly determined by the amount of labor time that goes into, you know, th- th- that argument is very complicated. Um, but Bumbavak also deals with that in the book. So if anyone's interested, you know, in getting that deep into the criticism, you know, they can find that also in the, in the book. Let me point out the obvious here, which is that when you get popular level criticisms of Marx, they are not at this level. And I'm not saying this to be funny or to, you know, try to puff you up in some way, right? You know, but but simply to point out that it's fine to make surface level criticisms of Marxism because mm-hmm. there are some you can find yeah. where there are just claims that are not true or especially about laws of history and stuff that yeah. you can certainly – combat and and come after. But when it gets to the economics of it, it's not quite enough just to say, oh, well, there's the socialist calculation problem. I mean, that does deal with a lot of it. And if that's as far as you want to go, that's okay. But if you really want to engage with with folks and take all these concepts and show that they don't actually cohere Mm -hmm. and they don't yield you the results that they're supposed to yield you, then you need to read Bombavrk. And you you probably should read the article that you and your student wrote. Yes, uh, I think if someone wants to, you know, and that was the reason why, you know, we wrote the article. It was sort of a way, you know, if someone doesn't have the time to go through the whole book, uh, they can read the article. They'll get a good flavor of everything that's in the book. Or, you know, if someone wants to read an easier version of what is in the book, they can start with the article. That, that was our intention. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in the sense that to have a complete criticism of Marx, um, one must deal with Marx and economists. And, and, you know, of course, there is this whole aspect, and that was really the aspect that Mises emphasized, because he was building off Bumbavark. He just assumed that, you know, everyone's going to read Bumbavark and deal with the actual other criticisms of Marx. His main criticism, as, as was Hayek's, was to focus on, well, what happens when you put his actual positive proposal into practice, right, which is socialism or central planning and all of that stuff? How, how can that work? But what Bumbavark deals with is the opposite. You know, which is to say, is his analysis of capitalism correct, right? Um, and in fact, one could argue that in many ways, if his analysis of capitalism in an economic standpoint isn't correct, then his whole theory of historical stages and the whole theory of dialectical, you know, 
the whole historical materialism, all of that also falls apart. Um, because, you know, these are the laws of motion of capitalism, which will ensure that capitalism, capitalism will decay, right, based on its own sort of inherent contradictions and will lead us sort of inexorably um, to, to socialism. Right. Now, there are still there are parts of Marx's system that you can just in a drive by fashion go after, and it's so tempting to do that. There's nothing wrong with that, but uh, like for instance, one of my favorites is a point that Mises, I think, makes in Theory and History, where he says, you know, Marx uh, has this theory of how culture and law and ideology fits into his system, and it's that the the means of production mm-hmm. at a particular time somehow are the source of where people get their ideas. So, you know, you get serfdom derives the ideas and principles of it from the means of production that were at right. work at that time. But of course, what the, what this overlooks is where did those means of production come from? Come from How could yeah. you have created those means of production unless you already had legal yeah. ideas and moral <laughs> ideas and whatever right. to, that would be the backdrop for the creation of the means of production? Right. right. And in fact, it goes with the overall sort of emphasis you know, that Mises placed on ideas, um, which also is, I think, inherent and crucial to the whole classical liberal political philosophy, right? Um, that, that ideas ultimately drive, you know, both economic life, political life, social life. So sort of Marx's whole theory inverts that. Um, uh, and Mises also has a criticism, I think, of Engels, who tries to develop a whole dialectic of nature and, you know, stuff along the similar line. So it is basically saying that, well, things happen in the material substratum and then that has an influence on the ideal, you know, the, the ideas, uh, sort of putting Hegel on his, on his head. Well, TomWoods.com slash 1176 is where you can read the article by GP and is it Cassidy? Yes, Cassidy. Yes. Okay. So you should definitely read it. It's, it's very clear step-by-step step. read it three times if you need to. But once you do that, <laughs> Not only will you know more about Marx and his ideas than any libertarian you know, you will know more than 99.9% of the Marxists you'll ever meet. And that's a pretty good advantage to enjoy when you go in and and argue with them. Well, GP, thanks so much for your time. Looking forward to seeing you next month at the Mises Institute for Mises University. Sure, yes, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, And it was great to talk to you. All right, everybody. We are coming up upon the big event in New Orleans, June 30th, 2018, Really need you to be there. If you can possibly get there, if you're within driving distance or you don't mind hopping on a plane, make sure and be there. Support the Mises Caucus in the good work it's trying to do with the Libertarian Party. And even if you don't like the Libertarian Party or interested in politics, it doesn't matter because you're just going to have a great time because Dave Smith will be emceeing, Scott Horton will be there, Michael Bolden will be there, Eric July and his band Backwards will be there, Murray Sabrin will be there. Every single one of these people has been a guest on the Tom Woods Show. There are going to be others there as well. It's going to be a packed day, just full of great fun and camaraderie. So definitely make the effort to be there. For details, head over to TakeHumanAction.com. You'll get all the details you need. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.